Hello and welcome to the BIF podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Uh, this is the second episode. Last time we did a little bit of a thought experiment just to kind of break the ice and get into the subject at hand. Uh, but I have uh, I have a lot of it, uh, over five, six years experience working with the intellectually disabled population in a variety of capacities. And uh, during that time, I learned a lot about uh, people with intellectual disabilities, although this podcast is not specifically about that, but it's related to it. And I think it, it will definitely inform things that I cover throughout our discussions that we're going to have. So anyway, in this episode, I'm going to talk about my own personal experience from the time that I, you know, that I was young till, till now, how I, and how I came upon this topic of borderline intellectual function, BIF. So when I was young, I, you know, I'd never been diagnosed with a intellectual disability, but ever since I was a baby, really, ever since I was really, really small, I was known for being absent-minded. I constantly was in the clouds, daydreaming, didn't pay attention to things uh, when I was a young child. And uh, it was made me very forgetful. And so when a, lot of, a lot of my family or my, one of my parents and some relatives would say that I was in the clouds all the time, that I was just distracted. Now, obviously, to make matters worse, you know, depending on how your family, your parents are, you know, this could be a very, you know, could be, it could range from being a nuisance to a really frightening experience. For me, it was, unfortunately, it was the latter. You know, I had, a, you know, one of my parents in particular was very, very harsh and I was punished severely when I forgot or lost things, especially as I started to get older, you know, five, six, seven years old. As I started getting older and older and I kept doing these things, I kept losing things, forgetting things. Uh, I was severely punished. So it was something that obviously uh, had a huge impact in my life starting from when I was a child. Now, now as a, you know, as a person in uh, grade school, I started to really focus on that because of just the, the harsh punishments that it just became something that was always on my mind. It became the preeminent issue in my life and a big shameful part of my identity, something that I didn't want people to find out about me, that I, I, didn't, I never wanted to find out that people, that, that I didn't want other people to find out that I was a little forgetful. And so it was just like a, a huge, like a, a dark secret that I had, you know, that I, I didn't want people to find out. So... I got better as far as not losing things all the time. I still would do it, but not as much. And, um, <clears throat> you know, during the my teens and the rest of my adult life, I, I improved that ability, con you know, still. But new issues emerged. I was still, you know, slightly naive and simple-minded, and I lacked social skills. I didn't have that many friends. I was kind of off on my own. I was always a, a person that liked to really daydream still you know uh but i wasn't very good in the moment with conversations with people i didn't have the quickest wit i didn't really know what to talk about i didn't i wasn't really aware of what other people were into going into my teenage years and and it was really hard high school i mean i ended up improving my social skills eventually but 
but this is something that I've struggled with even to this day, you know. Uh, but I, uh, you know, in addition to social skills, I didn't have the very best ability to advocate for myself and and things like that. So I was susceptible to to being, you know, to, to being coerced and, and manipulated, deceived, things like that. And those are kind of the things that I dealt with. Now, once I became an adult and, you know, college years that I did go to college, I was pressured to go, so I had to go. But I did go to college. Uh, but I really had a hard time juggling a lot of responsibilities at once. Uh, you know, with managing work and family, friendships. Uh, I didn't really have a, a girlfriend for a long time. So I just didn't know what how to do it. I didn't even know where to begin. So I lagged behind my peers as... One by one, they would go on and establish themselves in their careers. Once you know, we were while we were in college and graduated from college, uh, a lot of my peers would go on, and you know, they they all had relationships. They they go on and get married, start their careers, start their own families, and I could never do that. I mean, it, for me, it was just even hard to even get a relationship, get a girlfriend, and it wasn't because I was unattractive. It was more because I just my mind. I wasn't very good at knowing what to do. And once I did have someone, I got stressed very easily with, with the demands of the relationship. So um, that's my story. Uh, again, um, I, I got tested for ADD uh, when I was in college, my, uh, my, er my early 20s. I turned out not to have it, according to these tests that I took, these uh, questionnaires and whatever. Um, and, and I, I went to see a psychologist for that and they, uh, they determined that I didn't have it. I've never been, uh, diagnosed, like I said, with any disability. Um, but what I did have is a lot of, <laughs> as you can imagine, I did struggle with depression and anxiety and I sought a lot of counseling, particularly, particularly like in my mid twenties and, and beyond, not a lot, but off, off and on. And I didn't find it that helpful because I did, I did, I would tell my psychologist that, you know, I was a little bit distracted and I, sometimes I felt I was a little slow and I wasn't as sharp or as, as, as sharp minded as, as my peers. And I felt like I was inferior and a lot of my psychologists wouldn't, in fact, all of them, none of them really address that. They wouldn't acknowledge it. They would just say, well, they, they would, they would treat it as something that I was perceiving, but it couldn't be true that I shouldn't talk that way and on and on and on. So I never really felt like it helped. It helped to get things out, but I don't think uh, they never really addressed the, the primary issue because, it, like I said earlier, it was, it's, it's a taboo. Well, like I said in the previous episode, it's a taboo. So same thing with my family, friends. If I ever even mentioned any inkling that I was a little slow or a little distracted, they, 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 they wouldn't want me to talk like that. They wouldn't let me talk like that. They would just tell me that I wasn't, that I was just... I needed to have confidence or things like that. So, but those things made it doubly demoralizing because whatever I had was so unacceptable that I even I was told that I couldn't even recognize its existence, right? So it was very very difficult uh, to to have to deal with this. I didn't know of any clinical term. There was whatever I had didn't exist. It was in my mind, even though I knew it existed. Nobody would acknowledge it. Not friends, not family, not not psychologists, not trained 
therapist? No one. So obviously that, that led me to a, a real big search. Uh, little, well, big uh, phase of reflection and introspection, writing in journals, uh, lots, of, lots of writing, lots of journaling. And, and then eventually going on, on the internet looking for different things that had to do with people that are absent-minded, that are slow, that are blah, blah, blah. And um, somehow I ran into a, a, this concept about well, well over 10 years ago. I started researching these, these things. And then, in fact, I printed something with a date stamp on it. So I still have the, the actual article that I found. It's on 2012. I came across a website for a mental health clinic that contained links to a narrative article on intellectual disability. And it was in this article that I first discovered uh, BIF when I read it. So it was like finding a hidden pot of gold, like a missing puzzle piece to the mystery of this mysterious, uh, non-existent um, thing that I had. This was the missing puzzle piece, right? So... I'm going to read a little bit of it. Now, if uh, I'm going to put on the show notes the link to the article. Unfortunately, the article, the same authors, they don't, they removed BIF uh, from their article. Uh, apparently, you'll see why it's it's been, that term is kind of going away, unfortunately, uh, in new diagnostic manuals. And, you know, well, it'll be discussed in this article. But um, I do have another another article that talks about BIF that that kind of goes hand in hand. So I'll post links to those. But um, in order to understand BIF, it's good to understand uh, intelligence, uh, IQ, and the bell curve, the intelligence curve. In fact, the image on my podcast, my podcast image is the actual what's called the normal curve. And so we're going to have another episode where we talk about the curve. But now the article is titled Intellectual Disabilities. It was written by Tammy Reynolds, C.E. Zupatnik, and Mark Dumbeck. So these are three different, uh, I presume, doctors. Unfortunately, like I mentioned, the, the, BI, it's the, the current article doesn't have BIF. But the, this one that I printed still has. So luckily I did print it and I'm going to read from it. Uh, the BIF section. So, quote, one problem with the DSM-4-TR strict IQ criteria is that there are some people with IQ scores between 70 and 84 that are just slightly above what would qualify them for diagnosis of intellectual disability. Although they would not ordinarily meet the diagnostic criteria, their cognitive functioning is limited, creating problems for everyday functioning, judgment, and academic achievement. This level of functioning may be diagnosed as borderline intellectual functioning under the DSM-IV-TR criteria. Now, a side note, dsm 4 that was the diagnostic manual that was current in 2012. Now, it's so, since become updated, and you'll see what the ramifications of that are. Okay, so back to the article. It is expected that the dsm 5 will do away for the need to have this special BIF category. In the meantime, it is useful to understand this diagnostic label. 
The classification describes a group of 7% of the general population. People who meet the criteria for BIF are certainly disadvantaged, but at the same time function well enough to make it difficult to determine there are deficits meriting legal protection, financial assistance, and social services. Diagnosing BIF is complicated as the condition is subtle and difficult to detect. BIF may also be accompanied by comorbid disorders, which further complicate the diagnostic process. BIF often escapes detection until affected individuals reach school age. As is the case with dis intellectual disability, the diagnosis of BIF is made with a combination of tests, screenings, and, adapt and adaptive functioning assessments. BIF is not well known. Its obscurity lies in its neither here nor there nature. The subtle nature of BIF is further complicated by terminology because it was firm formerly known as borderline intellectual disability. Uh, this condition's new title no longer includes the word disability, so it prevents affected individuals from being recognized as having deficits. So deficits go, you know, I'm, now I'm going to skip through a little bit. Deficits go often unnoticed until affected individuals reach school settings or other demanding unfamiliar environments, if identified at all. Left undetected, these chronic deficits and associated frustrations may lead to higher rates of incarceration, unemployment, and poverty. End quote. So, that is a huge handful. Now, notice I want to just kind of go over a few things before we, we end our, our, our episode today. But they, they said a lot of different things in just that uh, those couple paragraphs. Number one, uh, I want to point out, it's, it mentioned that they theorized or they estimated that 7% of the population could have this. Now, we don't know for for sure, but this is just based on the nature of the normal curve. Which Now, 7% may not seem like a high number, but if you think about the population of the United States, around 300 and something million people, 7% of 100 million is, is 7 million. So if you multiply that by 3, that's 21 million. So we're talking about potentially 20 million people in the United States with this. 20 million people is not a small number. I don't care how you slice it. So we're talking about a huge amount of people that could potentially have this or be, be going through, you know, ha having this condition and having these difficulties. Number two, it's, uh, it talked about how it's, it's very unknown. It's very hard to detect. It's obscure and that these deficits often go unnoticed, right? And that's exactly what what I want to point out, what I'm going to be pointing out. And that's the whole purpose of why I'm starting this podcast. I mean, it's you don't see this word anywhere. I mean, you, you might get, if you type it in Google, you'll get some scholarly journals, you'll get some articles here and there, but you don't see it in you don't see it in YouTube hardly. You don't see it in, in dictionaries. You don't see it in pop culture, really. It's it's just not it's just not out there. But it is a phenomenon that exists, and it's according to the article that most of the time it's not going to be detected, it's not going to be identified, and instead, people that have this will struggle with life. And according to this article. People will have comorbid disorders, meaning they're going to have probably things like depression, like I mentioned that I had, I had when I was younger. Um, 
depression and um, anxiety, things like that, low self-esteem, you name it, all those different things that could be associated with this. But the very last sentence of the article uh, talks about how if undetected, these deficits uh, may lead to higher rates of incarceration, unemployment, and poverty. That's interesting. They made a connection between this and people being incarcerated, people not being able to hold jobs, and people being poor. Now, that's a very general statement, but I think, I don't know about poor, but yeah, if, obviously, if you can't if you can't get a job, you're going to be not only poor, I mean, you're going to be, you could be homeless, right? You could be obviously not not have much income not be able not have a lot of opportunities in life it's a huge huge deficit to have it's a it's almost a disability really if you can't if it prevents you from being able to hold down a job and it's 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 borderline a disability but it's more than that it's not you know it's not that oh it needs it needs to be listed as a disability it's more than that it's it's it it has a huge impact on these people's lives. It, it, it prevents them from doing simple things uh, like holding down jobs, making enough money to have their own place and feel good about themselves, maybe find a partner, start a family. Like a lot of times people with this may not even be able to do the simple things that a lot of us take for granted. So we're going to talk, we're going to get into all that uh, in later episodes, but <clears throat> Just wanted to point out how I found this this term and this concept, and definitely want to uh, get you know if if you're listening to this, definitely feel free to email me. The emails on the show notes. I'm going to try to see if I can set up a voicemail, uh, my Twitter account, things like that. Definitely want to hear some feedback on what you may think. Um, and definitely as we go along as well, definitely want to have a little bit of a two-way uh, conversation about this. Thank you. That's going to be it for today. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, be well. 